0: Hello and welcome to the Mayor Zine, a weekly audio magazine narrated with increasing help from my friends and curated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Let's just get right into the conclusion of Bear Trap. We followed Tom Shandor as he was tasked to dig into the life of David Ingersoll, champion of peace. The deeper he went the more he uncovered of the true story, a story of a warmonger. Having gone to the dartmouth Bearing Corporation's Nevada facility, he discovered more than even he expected to find, and then got his lights knocked out. Bear Trap By Alan E. Norse Part 4. It was a tiny room, completely without windows, the artificial light filtering through from ventilation slits near the top. Shandor sat up, shaking as the chill in the room became painfully evident. A small electric heater sat in the corner, beaming valiantly, but the heat hardly reached his numbed toes. He stood up, shaking himself, slapping his arms against his sides to drive off the coldness, and he heard a noise through the door as soon as he had made a sound. Muted footsteps stopped outside the door, and a huge man stepped inside. He looked at Shandor carefully, then closed the door behind him, without locking it. "'I'm Baker,' he rasped cheerfully. "'How are you feeling?' Shandor rubbed his head, suddenly and acutely aware of a very sore nose and a bruised ribcage. Not so hot, he muttered. How long have I been out? Long enough. The man pulled out a plug of tobacco, ripped off a chunk with his teeth. Chew? I smoke. Shandor fished for cigarettes in an empty pocket. Not in here you don't, said Baker. He shrugged his huge shoulders and settled affably down on the bench near the wall. You feel like talking? Shandor eyed the unlocked door and turned his eyes to the huge man. Sure, he said. What do you want to talk about? I don't want to talk about nothing, the big man replied, indifferently. Thought you might, though. Are you the one that roughed me up? Yep. Baker grinned. Hope I didn't hurt you much. Boss had to keep you in one piece, but we had to hurry up and take care of those army guys you brought in on your tail. That was dumb. You almost upset everything. Memory flooded back and Shandor's eyes widened. Yes, they followed me all the way from Lincoln. What happened to them? Baker grinned and chomped his tobacco. They're a long way away now. Don't worry about them. Shandoor eyed the door uneasily. The latch hadn't caught, and the door had swung open an inch or two. Where am I? He asked, inching toward the door. What, what are you planning to do with me? Baker watched him edging away. You're safe, he said. The boss will talk to you pretty soon if you feel like it. He squinted at Tom in surprise, pointing an indolent thumb toward the door. You planning to go out or something? Tom stopped short, his face red. The big man shrugged. Go ahead. I ain't going to stop you. He grinned. Go as far as you can. Without a word, Shandor threw open the door, looked out into the concrete corridor. At the end was a large, bright room. Cautiously, he started down, then suddenly let out a cry and broke into a run, his eyes wide. He reached the room, a large room, with heavy plastic windows. He ran to one of the windows, pulse pounding, and stared, a cry choking in his throat. The blackness of the crags contrasted dimly with the inky blackness of the sky beyond. Mile upon mile of jagged, rocky crags, black rock, ageless, unaged rock. And it struck him with a jolt how easily he had been able to run, how lightning swift his movements. He stared again, and then he saw what he had seen in the pit, standing high outside the building on a rocky flat standing bright and silvery, like a phantom finger pointing to the inky heavens, sleek, smooth, resting on polished tail fins like an otherworldly bird poised for flight. A voice behind him said, You aren't really going anyplace, you know. Why run? It was a soft voice, a kindly voice, cultured, not rough and biting like Baker's voice. It came from directly behind Shandor, and he felt his skin growl. He had heard that voice before. Many times before. Even in his dreams he had heard that voice. You see, it's pretty cold out there, and there isn't any air. You're on the moon, Mr. Shandor. He whirled, his face twisted and white, and he stared at the small figure standing at the door, a stoop-shouldered man, white hair slightly untidy, crow's feet about his tired eyes, an old man with eyes that carried a sparkle of youth and kindliness. The eyes of David P. Ingersoll. Shandor stared for a long moment, shaking his head like a man seeing a phantom. When he found words, his voice was choked, the words wrenched out as if by force. You're... you're alive. Yes, I'm alive. Then... Shandor shook his head violently, turning to the window and back to the small, white-haired man. Then your death was just a fake. The old man nodded tiredly. That's right. Just a fake. Shandor stumbled to a chair, sat down woodenly. I don't get it, he said dully. I just don't get it. The war, that, that I can see. I can see how you worked it, how you engineered it. But this? He gestured feebly at the window, at the black impossible landscape outside. This I can't see. They're bombing us to pieces. They're bombing out Washington. Probably your own home, your own family. Last night! He stopped, frowning in confusion. No, it couldn't have been last night. Two days ago? Well, whatever day it was, they were bombing us to pieces, and you're up here! Why? What's it going to get you? This war, this whole rotten intrigue mess, and then this! The old man walked across the room and stared for a moment at the silent ship outside. I hope I can make you understand. We had to come here. We had no choice. We couldn't do what we wanted any other way than to come here, first, before anybody else. But why here? They're building a rocket there in Arizona. They'll be up here in a few days, maybe a few weeks. Approximately 48 hours, corrected Ingersoll quietly. Within 48 hours, the Arizona rocket will be here, if the Russian rocket doesn't get here first. It doesn't make sense. It won't do you any good to be here if the Earth is blasted to bits. Why come here? And why bring me here of all people? What do you want with me? Ingersoll smiled and sat down opposite Shandor. Take it easy, he said gently. You're here, you're safe, and you're going to get the whole story. I realize that this is a bit of a jolt, but you had to be jolted. With you, I think the jolt will be very beneficial, since we want you with us. That's why we brought you here. We need your help. And we need it very badly. It's as simple as that. Shandor was on his feet, eyes blazing. No dice! This is your game, not mine. I don't want anything to do with it. But you don't know the game. I know plenty of the game. I followed the trail right from the start. I know the whole rotten mess. The trail led me all the way round Robin Hood's barn, but it told me things. Oh, it told me plenty. It told me about you and this war, and now you want me to help you. What do you want me to do? Go down and tell the people it isn't really so bad being pounded to shreds? Should I tell them they aren't really being bombed, it's all in their minds? Shall I tell them this is a war to defend their freedoms, that it's a great crusade against the evil forces of the world? What kind of a sap do you think I am? He walked to the window, his whole body trembling with anger. I followed this trail down to the end. I scraped my way down into the dirtiest, slimiest depths of the barrel, and I found you down there, and your rotten corporations, and your crowd of healers. And on the other side are three hundred million people taking the lash end of the whip on earth, helping to feed you. And you ask me to help you. Once upon a time, Ingersoll interrupted quietly, there was a fox. Shandor stopped and stared at him and the fox got caught in a trap. A big bear trap with steel jaws that clamped down on him and held him fast by the leg. He wrenched and he pulled, but he couldn't break that trap open, no matter what he did. And the fox knew that the farmer would come along almost any time to open that bear trap, and the fox knew the farmer would kill him. He knew that if he didn't get out of that trap, he'd be finished, sure as sin. But he was a clever fox, and he found a way to get out of the bear trap. Ingersoll's voice was low, tense in the still room. Do you know what he did? Shandor shook his head silently. It was a very simple solution, said Ingersoll. Drastic, but simple. He gnawed off his leg. Another man had entered the room, a small, weasel-faced man with sallow cheeks and slick black hair. Ingersoll looked up with a smile but Mariel waved him on and took a seat nearby. "'So he chewed off his leg,' Shandor repeated dully. "'I don't get it.' "'The world is in a trap,' said Ingersoll, watching Shandor with quiet eyes. "'A great big bear trap. "'It's been in that trap for decades, "'ever since the First World War. "'The world has come to a wall it can't climb, "'a trap it can't get out of, "'a vicious, painful, torturous trap.' and the world has been struggling for seven decades to get out. It hasn't succeeded, and the time is drawing rapidly nigh for the farmer to come. Something had to be done, and done fast, before it was too late. The fox had to chew off its leg, and I had to bring the world to the brink of a major war. Shandor shook his head, his mind buzzing. I don't see what you mean. We never had a chance for peace. We never had a chance to get our feet on the ground from one round to the next. No time to do anything worthwhile in the past seventy years. I don't see what you mean about a trap. Ingersoll settled back in his chair, the light catching his face in sharp profile. It's been a century of almost continuous war, he said. You've pointed out the whole trouble. We haven't had time to catch our breath, to make real peace. The First World War was a sorry affair by our standards, almost a relic of earlier European wars trench fighting, poor rifles, soapbox aircraft, nothing to distinguish it from earlier wars but its scope. But twenty uneasy years went by, and another war began, a very different sort of war. This one had fast aircraft, fast mechanized forces, heavy bombing, and finally, to cap the climax, atomics. That Second World War could hold up its head as a real, strapping, fighting war in any society of wars. It was a stiff war, and a terrible one. Quite a bit of progress for twenty years. But essentially, it was a war of ideologies, just as the previous one had been. A war of intolerance, of unmixable ideas. The old man paused and drew a sip of water from the canister in the corner. Somewhere, somehow, the world had missed the boat. Those wars didn't solve anything. They didn't even make a very strong pretense. They just made things worse. Somewhere, human society had gotten into a trap, a vicious circle. It had reached the end of its progressive tether. It had no place to go, no place to expand to great common goal. So ideologies arose to try to solve the dilemma of a basically static society. And they fought wars. And they reached a point, finally, where they could destroy themselves unless they broke the vicious circle somehow. Shandor looked up, a deep frown on his face. You're trying to say that they needed a new frontier. Exactly. They desperately needed it. There was only one more frontier they could reach for. A frontier which, once attained, has no real end. He gestured toward the black landscape outside. There's the frontier, space, the one thing that could bring human wars to an end, a vast, limitless frontier which could drive men's spirits upward and outward for the rest of time. And that frontier seemed unattainable. It was blocked off by a wall, by the jaws of a trap. Oh, they tried. After the First War the work began. The Second War contributed unimaginably to the technical knowledge, but after the Second War they could go no further. Because it cost money. It required a tremendous effort on the part of the people of a great nation to do it, and they couldn't see why they should spend the money to get to space. After all, they had to work up the atomics and new weapons for the next war. It was a trap, as strong and treacherous as any the people of the world had ever encountered. The answer, of course, was obvious. Each war brought a great surge of technological development, to build better weapons, to fight bigger wars. Some developments led to extremely beneficial ends, too. If it hadn't been for the Second War, a certain British biologist might still be piddling around his understaffed, underpaid laboratory, wishing he had more money and wondering why it was that that dirty patch of mold on his petri dish seemed to keep bacteria from growing. But the Second War created a sudden, frantic, urgent demand for something, anything that would stop infection. Fast and in no time penicillin was a mass production, saving untold thousands of lives. There was no question of money. Look at the Manhattan Project. How many millions went into that? It gave us atomic power, for war and for peace. For peaceful purposes, the money would never have been spent. But if it was for the sake of war... Ingersoll smiled tiredly. Sounds insane, doesn't it? But look at the record. I looked at the record way back at the end of the war with China. Other men looked at the record, too. We got together and talked. We knew that the military advantage of a rocket base on the moon could be a deciding factor in another major war. Military experts had recognized that fact back in the 1950s. Another war could give men the technological kick they needed to get them to space, possibly in time. If men got to space before they destroyed themselves, the trap would be broken, the frontier would be opened, and men could turn their energies away from destruction towards something infinitely greater and more important. With space on his hands, men could get along without wars. But if we waited for peacetime to go to space, we might never make it. It might be too late. It was a dreadful undertaking. I saw the wealth in the company I directed and controlled at the end of the Chinese war, and the idea grew strong. I saw that a huge industrial amalgamation could be undertaken and succeed. We had a weapon in our favor, the most dangerous weapon ever devised, a thousand times more potent than atomics. Hitler used it with terrible success. Stalin used it. Haro Tsing used it. Why couldn't Ingersoll use it? Propaganda. A terrible weapon. It could make people think the right way. It could make them think almost any way. It made them think war. From the end of the last war, we started with propaganda, with politics, with money. The group grew stronger as our power became more clearly understood. Mariel handled propaganda through the newspapers and PIB and magazines, a clever man. And Harry Dartmouth handled production. I handled the politics and diplomacy. We had but one aim in mind, to bring about the threat of major war that would drive men to space. To the moon, to a man-made satellite, somewhere or anywhere to break through the Earth's gravity and get to space. And we aimed at a controlled war. We had the power to do it. We had the money and the plants. We just had to be certain it wasn't the ultimate war. It wasn't easy to make sure that atomic weapons wouldn't be used this time, but they will not. Both nations are too much afraid, thanks to our propaganda program. They both leaped at a chance to make a face-saving agreement. And we hoped that the war could be held off until we got to the moon, and until the Arizona Rocket Project could get a ship launched for the moon. The wheels we had started just moved too fast. I saw at the beginning of the Berlin conference that it would explode into war, so I decided the time for my death had arrived. I had to come here to make sure the war doesn't go on any longer than necessary. Shandor looked up at the old man, his eyes tired. I still don't see where I'm supposed to fit in. I don't see why you came here at all. Was that a wild goose chase I ran down there, learning about this? Not a wild goose chase. The important work can't start, you see, until the rocket gets here. It wouldn't do much good if the Arizona rocket got here to fight the war. It may come for war, but it must go back for peace. We built this rocket to get us here first, built it from government specifications, though they didn't know it. We had the plant to build it in, and we were able to hire technologists not to find the right answers in Arizona until we were finished because the whole value of the war threat depended solely and completely upon our getting here first. When the Arizona rocket gets to the moon, the war must be stopped. Only then can we start the real Operation Bear Trap. That ship, whether American or Russian, will meet with a great surprise when it reaches the moon. We haven't been spotted here. We left in darkness and solitude, and if we were seen, it was chalked off as a guided missile. We're well camouflaged, and although we don't have any sort of elaborate base, just a couple of sealed rooms, we have a ship and we have weapons. When the first ship comes up here, the control of the situation will be in our hands. Because when it comes, it will be sent back with an ultimatum to all nations to cease warfare or suffer the most terrible, nonpartisan bombardment the world has ever seen, a pinpoint bombardment from our ship here on the moon. There won't be too much bickering, I think. The war will stop. All eyes will turn to us. And then the big work begins. He smiled, his thin face showing tired lines in the bright light. I may die before the work is done. I don't know, nor care. I have no successor, nor have we any plans to perpetuate our power once the work is done. As soon as the people themselves will take over the work, the job is theirs because no group can hope to ultimately control space. But first, people must be sold on space, from the bottom up. They must be forced to realize the implications of a ship on the moon. They must realize that the first ship was the hardest, that the trap is sprung. The amputation is a painful one, there wasn't any known anesthetic, but it will heal, and from here there is no further need for war. But the people must see that, understand its importance. They've got to have the whole story in terms that they can't mistake. And that means a propagandist. You have Mariel, said Shandor. He's had the work, the experience. He's getting tired. He'll tell you himself his ideas are slow. He isn't on his toes any longer. He needs a new man, a helper, to take his place. When the first ship comes, his job is done. The old man smiled. I've watched you of course for years. Mariel saw that you were given his job when he left PIB to edit Fighting World. He didn't think you were the man. He didn't trust you. Thought you had been raised too strongly on the sort of gibberish you were writing. I thought you were the only man we could use. So we let you follow the trail and watched to see how you'd handle it. And when you came to the Nevada plant, we knew you were the man we had to have. Shandor scowled looking first at Ingersoll, then at Mariel's impassive face. What about Anne? he asked, and his voice was unsteady. She knew about it all the time? No, she didn't know anything about it. We were afraid she had upset things when she didn't turn my files over to Dartmouth as he'd told her. We were afraid you'd go ahead and write the story as you saw it then, which would have wrecked our plan completely. As it was, she helped us sidestep the danger in the long run, but she didn't know what she was really doing. He grinned. The error was ours, of course. We simply underestimated our man. We didn't know you were that tenacious. Shandor's face was haggard. Look, I... I don't know what to think. This ship in Arizona, how long? When will it come? How do you know it'll ever come? We waited until our agents there gave us a final report. The ship may be leaving at any time, but there's no doubt that it'll come. If it doesn't, one from Russia will. It won't be long. He looked at Shandor closely. You'll have to decide by then, Tom. And if I don't go along with you? We could lose. It's as simple as that. Without a spokesman, the plan could fall through completely. There's only one thing you need to make your decision, Tom. Faith in men and a sure conviction that man was made for the stars and not for an endless circle of useless wars. Think of it, Tom. That's what your decision means. Shandor walked to the window, stared out at the bleak landscape, watched the great bluish globe of Earth hanging like a huge balloon in the black sky. He saw the myriad pinpoints of light in the blackness on all sides of it and shook his head, trying to think. So many things to think of. So very many things. I don't know, he muttered. I just don't know. It was a long night. Ideas are cruel. They become part of a man's brain, an inner part of his chemistry. They carve grooves deep in his mind which aren't easily wiped away. He knew he'd been living a lie, a bitter, hopeless, endless lie, all his life. But a liar grows to believe his own lies, even to the point of destruction he believes them. It was so hard to see the picture now that he had the last piece in place. A fox and a bear trap. Such a simple analogy. War was a hellish proposition. It was cruel. It was evil. It could be lost so very easily, and it seemed so completely, utterly senseless to cut off one's own leg. And then he thought, somewhere, sometime, he'd see her again. Perhaps they'd be old by then, but perhaps not. Perhaps they'd still be young, and perhaps she wouldn't know the true story yet. Perhaps he could be the first to tell her, to let her know that he had been wrong. Maybe there could be a chance to be happy on Earth sometime. They might marry, even. There might be children. To be raised for what? Wars and wars and more wars? Or was there another alternative? Perhaps the stars were winking brighter. A hoarse shout rang through the quiet rooms. Ingersoll sat bolt upright, turned his bright eyes to Mariel, and looked down the passageway. And then they were crowding to the window as one of the men snapped off the lights in the room, and they were staring up at the pale bluish globe that hung in the sky, squinting, breathless. And they saw the tiny, tiny burst of brightness on one side of that globe, saw a tiny wisp of yellow, cutting an arc from the edge, moving farther and farther into the black circle of space around the earth, slicing like a thin scimitar, moving higher and higher, and then magically winking out leaving a tiny, evaporating trail behind it. "'You saw it?' whispered Mariel in the darkness. "'You saw it, David?' "'Yes, I saw it.' Ingersoll breathed deeply, staring into the blackness, searching for a glimmer, a glint, some faint reassurance that it had not been a mirage they had seen. And then Ingersoll felt a hand in his, Tom Shandor's hand, gripping his tightly, wringing it, And when the lights snapped on again, he was staring at Shandor, tears of happiness streaming from his pale, tired eyes. You saw it? he whispered. Shandor nodded, his heart suddenly too large for his chest, a peace settling down on him greater than any he had ever known in his life. They're coming, he said. This next piece is rather interesting. By H.P. Lovecraft, it's not exactly his usual weird horror. It's a story of a fictional street through the years, from the founding of America right up until an unknown time. I say that because this story was published in 1920, just after World War I and way before World War II. I don't know if he made any of it up wholesale, but it was influenced by the October Revolution. Lenin's first attempt at a coup, and the key inciting incident to the eventual formation of the Soviet Union by way of a long series of revolutions and civil war, as well as the Boston police strike of 1919. This is somewhat widely regarded as his worst story, although I feel it's not so bad read out loud. I've read worse by him, personally. It is also held up as a striking example of his racism and bigotry. It's vague enough that racism I can't really see... But there's a lot of bigotry and xenophobia on display, but it feels appropriate to the piece. If it was anyone else, I would say it's intentional to contrast with the calmer, happier first half, but let's face it, it's Lovecraft. He had bigotry and xenophobia in spades, and that's what makes his works both so compelling and so problematic. But I'm digressing. Let's take a walk down the street, and remember, this was published in 1920. The Street by H. P. Lovecraft. There be those who say that things and places have souls, and there be those who say they have not. I dare not say myself, but I will tell of the street. Men of strength and honor fashioned that street good valiant men of our blood who had come from the blessed isles across the sea. At first it was but a path trodden by bearers of water from the woodland spring to the cluster of houses by the beach. Then, as more men came to the growing cluster of houses and looked about for places to dwell, they built cabins along the north side, cabins of stout oaken logs with masonry on the side toward the forest, for many Indians lurked there with fire-arrows and in a few years more men built cabins on the south side of the street. Up and down the street walked grave men in conical hats who most of the time carried muskets or fowling pieces, and there were also their bonneted wives and sober children. In the evening these men with their wives and children would sit about gigantic hearths and read and speak. Very simple were the things of which they read and spoke. Yet things which gave them courage and goodness had helped them by day to subdue the forest and till the fields. And the children would listen and learn of the laws and deeds of old, and of that dear England which they had never seen or could not remember. There was war, and thereafter no more Indians troubled the street. The men, busy with labor, waxed prosperous and as happy as they knew how to be. And the children grew up comfortably, and more families came from the motherland to dwell on the street; and the children's children and the newcomers' children grew up. The town was now a city, and one by one the cabins gave place to houses, simple beautiful houses of brick and wood, with stone steps and iron railings and fanlights over the doors. No flimsy creations were these houses, for they were made to serve many a generation. Within there were carven mantles and graceful stairs and sensible, pleasing furniture, china, and silver brought from the motherland. So the street drank in the dreams of a young people and rejoiced as its dwellers became more graceful and happy. Where once had been only strength and honor, taste and learning now abode as well. Books and paintings and music came to the houses, and the young men went to the university which rose above the plain to the north. In the place of conical hats and muskets there were three cornered hats and small swords, and lace and snowy periwigs; and there were cobblestones over which clattered many a blooded horse, and rumbled many a gilded coach, and brick sidewalks with horse blocks and hitching posts; there were in that street many trees, elms and oaks and maples of dignity, so that in the summer the scene was all soft verdure and twittering birdsong. And behind the houses were walled rose gardens with hedged paths and sundials, where at evening the moon and stars would shine bewitchingly while fragrant blossoms glistened with dew. So the street dreamed on, past wars, calamities, and changes. Once most of the young men went away, and some never came back. That was when they furled the old flag and put up a new banner of stripes and stars. But though men talked of great changes, the street felt them not. For its folk were still the same, speaking of the old familiar things in the old familiar accents, and the trees still sheltered singing birds, and at evening the moon and stars looked down upon dewy blossoms in the walled rose gardens. In time there were no more swords, three cornered hats, or periwigs in the street. How strange seemed the denizens with their walking sticks, tall beavers, and cropped heads! New sounds came from the distance. First strange puffings and shrieks from the river a mile away, and then, many years later, strange puffings and shrieks and rumblings from other directions. The air was not quite so pure as before, but the spirit of the place had not changed. The blood and soul of the people were as the blood and soul of their ancestors who had fashioned the street. Nor did the spirit change when they tore open the earth to lay down strange pipes, or when they set up tall posts bearing weird wires. There was so much ancient lore in that street that the past could not easily be forgotten. Then came days of evil, when many who had known the street of old knew it no more, and many knew it who had not known it before, and those who came were never as those who went away, for their accents were coarse and strident, and their mien and faces unpleasing. Their thoughts too fought with the wise, just spirit of the street, so that the street pined silently as its houses fell into decay and its trees died one by one and its rose gardens grew rank with weeds and waste. But it felt a stir of pride one day when again marched forth young men, some of whom never came back. These young men were clad in blue. With the years worse fortune came to the street. Its trees were all gone now, and its rose gardens were displaced by the backs of cheap, ugly new buildings on parallel streets. Yet the houses remained, despite the ravages of the years and the storms and worms, for they had been made to serve many a generation. New kinds of faces appeared in the street swarthy, sinister faces with furtive eyes and odd features, whose owners spoke unfamiliar words and placed signs in known and unknown characters upon most of the musty houses. Pushcarts crowded the gutters. A sordid, undefinable stench settled over the place, and the ancient spirit slept. Great excitement once came to the street. War and revolution were raging across the seas, A dynasty had collapsed, and its degenerate subjects were flocking with dubious intent to the western land. Many of these took lodgings in the battered houses that had once known the songs of birds and the scent of roses. Then the western land itself awoke, and joined the motherland in her titanic struggle for civilization. Over the cities once more floated the old flag, companioned by the new flag and by a plainer yet glorious tricolor. But not many flags floated over the street for therein brooded only fear and hatred and ignorance. Again young men went forth, but not quite as did the young men of those other days. Something was lacking. And the sons of those young men of other days, who did indeed go forth an olive drab with the true spirit of their ancestors, went from distant places and knew not the street and its ancient spirit. Over the seas there was a great victory, and in triumph most of the young men returned. Those who had lacked something lacked it no longer, yet did fear and hatred and ignorance still brood over the street, for many had stayed behind, and many strangers had come from distant places to the ancient houses, and the young men who had returned dwelt there no longer. Swarthy and sinister were most of the strangers, yet among them one might find a few faces like those who fashioned the street and molded its spirit. Like and yet unlike, for there was in the eyes of all a weird, unhealthy glitter as of greed, ambition, vindictiveness, or misguided zeal. Unrest and treason were abroad amongst an evil few who plotted to strike the western land its death-blow that they might mount to power over its ruins, even as assassins had mounted in that unhappy, frozen land from whence most of them had come. And the heart of that plotting was in the street, whose crumbling houses teemed with alien makers of discord and echoed with the plans and speeches of those who yearned for the appointed day of blood, flame, and crime. Of the various odd assemblages in the street, the law said much but could prove little. With great diligence did men of hidden badges linger and listen about such places as Petrovich's Bakery, the squalid Rifkin School of Modern Economics, the Circle Social Club, and the Liberty Café their congregated sinister men in great numbers, yet always was their speech guarded or in a foreign tongue. And still the old houses stood, with their forgotten lore of nobler departed centuries, of sturdy colonial tenants, and dewy rose gardens in the moonlight. Sometimes a lone poet or traveler would come to view them, and would try to picture them in their vanished glory, yet of such travelers and poets there were not many. The rumor now spread widely that these houses contained the leaders of a vast band of terrorists, who on a designated day were to launch an orgy of slaughter for the extermination of America and of all the fine traditions which the street had loved. Handbills and papers fluttered about filthy gutters, handbills and papers printed in many tongues and in many characters, yet all bearing messages of crime and rebellion. In these writings, the people were urged to tear down the laws and virtues that our fathers had exalted, to stamp out the soul of the old America, the soul that was bequeathed through a thousand and a half years of Anglo-Saxon freedom, justice, and moderation. It was said that the swart men who dwelt in the street and congregated in its rotting edifices were the brains of a hideous revolution that at their word of command many millions of brainless besotted beasts would stretch forth their noisome talents from the slums of a thousand cities, burning, slaying, and destroying till the land of our fathers should be no more. All this was said and repeated, and many looked forward in dread to the fourth day of July, about which the strange writings hinted much, yet could nothing be found to place the guilt. None could tell just whose arrest might cut off the damnable plotting at its source. Many times came bands of blue-coated police to search the shaky houses, though at last they ceased to come, for they too had grown tired of law and order and had abandoned all the city to its fate. Then men in olive drab came, bearing muskets, till it seemed as if in its sad sleep the street must have some haunting dreams of those other days when musket-bearing men in conical hats walked along it from the woodland spring to the cluster of houses by the beach. Yet could no act be performed to check the impending cataclysm, for the swart, sinister men were old and cunning. So the streets slept uneasily on, till one night there gathered in Petrovitch's bakery, and the Rifkin School of Modern Economics, and the Circle Social Club, and the Liberty Cafe, and in other places as well, vast hordes of men whose eyes were big with horrible triumph and expectation. Over hidden wires strange messages traveled, and much was said of still stranger messages yet to travel. But most of this was not guessed till afterward, when the western land was safe from the peril. The men in Olive Drab could not tell what was happening or what they ought to do, for the swart sinister men were skilled in subtlety and concealment. And yet the men in Olive Drab will always remember that night, and will speak of the street as they tell of it to their grandchildren. For many of them were sent there toward morning on a mission unlike that which they had expected. It was known that this nest of anarchy was old, and that the houses were tottering from the ravages of the years and the storms and the worms. Yet was the happening of that summer night a surprise because of its very queer uniformity. It was indeed an exceedingly singular happening, though after all a simple one. For without warning, in one of the small hours beyond midnight, All the ravages of the years and the storms and the worms came to a tremendous climax, and after the crash there was nothing left standing in the street save two ancient chimneys and part of a stout brick wall. Nor did anything that had been alive come alive from the ruins. A poet and a traveler, who came with the mighty crowd that sought the scene, tell odd stories. The poet says that all through the hours before dawn he beheld sordid ruins, but indistinctly in the glare of the arc-lights, that there loomed above the wreckage another picture, wherein he could descry moonlight, and fair houses, and elms, and oaks, and maples of dignity. And the traveller declares that instead of the place's wonted stench there lingered a delicate fragrance as of roses in full bloom. But are not the dreams of poets and the tales of travellers notoriously false? There be those who say that things and places have souls, and there be those who say they have not. I dare not say myself, but I have told you of the street. So how many parts of that story brought to mind current or currenter events? World War II, Vietnam, the McCarthy Red Scare, the anti-Muslim sentiment after 9-11? It feels very timely, doesn't it? Honestly, I think this is a very interesting piece of literature for how vaguely it was written that it can stand up and be inserted into almost any time period. And while it's very much a product of its author, it feels like it highlights the darker side of mankind as well. The terrorist group, by the way, is supposed to be Russian socialists who want to destroy the U.S., which is actually true of the time, and are perhaps expats from the various revolutions occurring in Russia at the time. So after all that warmongering and hatred, we need a breather, yeah? This next story was supposed to happen two weeks ago, but everything got pushed back and I just didn't have the time or energy to move the schedule around, so it is what it is. Even returns to grace our ears with the celebration of May and what the month means to those of the Christian faith. It's a darling story about a little girl and her little brother as they learn the lessons taught by the Virgin Mary the hard way.
1: A May Day Gift by Mary Catherine Crawley One Early on the morning of the first of May, Abby Clayton ran downstairs, exclaiming by way of greeting to the household, A bright May day, a bright May day. It isn't very bright, I'm sure, grumbled her little brother Larry, who clattered after her. There's no sunshine, and the wind blows so hard I shan't be able to sail my new boat on the pond in the park. It's mighty hard lines. I don't see why it can't be pleasant on a holiday. Think of all the shiny days we've had when a fellow had to be in school. Now, when there's a chance for some fun, it looks as if it were going to rain great guns. Well, it won't, said Abby pausing in the hall to glance back at him as he perched on the baluster above her. It won't rain great guns, nor pitchforks, nor cats and dogs, nor even torrents. It's going to clear up. Don't you know that some people say the sun generally shines, for a few minutes anyhow, on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin? This isn't Saturday, objected Larry, somewhat indignantly. Yes, but it is the first of May, and if that is not our Blessed Mother's Day too, I'd like to know what is said his sister. I don't believe that about the sun shining, continued Larry. If you are ten, only two years older than I am, you don't know everything. I'm going to ask mother. The children entered the breakfast room, greeted their father and mother, and then slipped into their places. Mother, began Larry, as he slowly poured the maple syrup over the crisp hot pancakes upon his plate. Is it true that the sun always shines on Saturday in honor of the Blessed Virgin? It is a pious and poetic saying, replied Mrs. Clayton, but a legendary sentiment of this kind often hides a deeper meaning. For those who are devoted to the Blessed Virgin, there is never a day so dark but that the love of Our Lady shines through the gloom like a sunbeam, changing to the rosy and golden tints of hope the leaden clouds that shadowed their happiness, and blessing the closing day of life, which, to look back upon, seems but as the ending of a week. Mrs. Clayton had hardly finished speaking when a long ray of yellow light fell upon the tablecloth. There, the sun's out now anyway. Crikey, I'm so glad, exclaimed Larry. The clouds were only blown up by the wind, said his father. I do not think we shall have rain today. Mother, may I put on a white dress and go to buy my May wreath, asked Abby. The air is too cold for you to change your warm gown for a summer one, dear, returned Mrs. Clayton. You may get the wreath, though, but be sure that you wear it over your hat. Abby seemed to think it was now her turn to grumble. Oh, dear, she murmured. All the girls wear white dresses and go without hats on May Day. I don't see why I can't. Her complaint made no impression, however, so she flounced out of the room. My mother is the most exaggerating person, exclaimed the little girl as she prepared for her shopping excursion. She meant aggravating. But, like most people who attempt to use large words the meaning of which they do not understand, she made draw mistakes sometimes. Abby had fifteen cents, which her grandma had given her the day before. I'll hurry down to the little women's before the best wreaths are gone, she said to herself. The place was a fancy store, kept by two prim but pleasant spinster sisters. Besides newspapers, stationery, thread and needles, and so forth, They kept a stock of toys, candies, and pickled limes, which ensured them a run of custom among the young folk, who always spoke of them as the little women. Not to disappoint the confidence placed in them by their youthful patrons, they had secured an excellent assortment of the crowns of tissue-paper flowers, which, in those days, every little girl considered essential to the proper observance of May Day. Abby selected one which she and the little women made up their minds was the prettiest. It usually took both of the little women to sell a thing. If one showed it, the other descanted upon its merits, or wrapped it up in paper when the bargain was completed. Neither of them appeared to transact any business, even to the disposal of a pickle lime, as the children say, quite on her own responsibility. After Abby had fully discussed the matter with them, therefore, she bought her wreath. It was made of handsome white tissue paper roses, with green tissue paper leaves, and had two long streamers. There was another of pink roses, which she thought would be just the thing for Larry to buy with the 15 cents which he had received also. But Larry had said, pshaw, I wouldn't wear a wreath. Abby didn't see why, because some boys wore them. On the way home, she met a number of her playmates. Several of them shivered in white dresses, and all were bareheaded except for their paper wreaths. Not one of the wreaths was so fine as Abby's, however but then few little girls had fifteen cents to expend upon one. Abby perceived at a glance that most of those worn by her companions were of the ten-cent variety. The little women had them for eight, and even five copper pennies would buy a very good one, although the roses of the five-cent kind were pronounced by those most interested to be little bits of things. Abby talked to the girls a while, and then went home to exhibit her purchase. Her mother commented approvingly upon it, and the little girl ran down to the kitchen to show it to Delia, the cook, who had lived with the family ever since Larry was a baby. Delia was loud in her admiration. Oh, on this day they do have great doings in Ireland, said she, but nowadays, to be sure, it's nothing to what it was in old times. It was on my eve, I've heard tell, that St. Patrick lit the holy fire at Thera, in spite of the ancient pagan laws. And in the days when the country was known as the island of saints and of scholars, sure throughout the length and breadth of the land the monastery bells rang in the May with praises of the Holy Mother, and the canticles in her honor were as ceaseless as the song of the birds. And t'was the fairies that were said to have great power at this season. Delia, you know very well there are no fairies, interrupted Abby. Well, some foolish folk thought there were, anyhow, answered Delia and in Maytide the children and cattle, the milk and the butter, were kept guarded from them. Many and many an evening I've listened to my mother that's dead and gone, God rest her soul, telling of an old woman that, at the time of the blooming of the hawthorn, always put a spent coal under the churn, and another beneath the grandchild's cradle, because that was said to drive the fairies away, and how primroses used to be scattered at the door of the house to prevent the fairies from stealing in, because they could not pass that flower. But you don't hear much of that any more, for the priest said t'was superstition, and down from the heathenish times. So the old people came to see 'twas wrong to use such charms, and the young people laughed at the old women's tales. Now and may they, the shrines in the church are bright with flowers, of course. And as for the innocent merrymakers, instead of a dance round the may or hawthorn bush, as in the olden times, in some places there's just perhaps a frolic on the village green when the boys and girls come home from the hills and dales with their garlands of spring blossoms. Not paper flares like those, added Delia, with a contemptuous glance at Abby's wreath, forgetting how much she had admired it only a few moments before. Somehow, it did not now seem so beautiful to Abby, either. She took it off and gazed at it with a sigh. Here in New England, the boys and girls go a-maying, she said. Last year, when we were in the country, Larry and I went with our cousins. We had such fun hanging May baskets. I got nine. But, she went on, regretfully, I don't expect any this year, for city children do not have those plays. She went upstairs to the sitting room where Larry was rigging his boat anew. He had been to the pond, but the wind wrought such havoc with the little craft that he had to put into port for repairs. Half an hour passed. Abby was dressing her beloved doll for an airing on the sidewalk. A promenade in a carriage, as the French say. While thus occupied, she half-hummed, half-sang, in a low voice, to herself, a popular May hymn. When she reached the refrain, Larry joined, and Delia appeared at the door just in time to swell the chorus with honest fervor. See, sweet Mary, on thy altars bloom the fairest flowers of May. Oh, may we, earth's sons and daughters, grow by grace as fair as they. If you please, said Delia at its close, there's a man below stairs who says he has something for you both. For us, exclaimed the children, starting up. Yes, your mother sent me to tell you. He says he was told to say us how he had a may basket for you. A may basket, Delia? What? All lovely flowers like those I told you about? Cried the little girl. Sure, child, and how could I see what was inside and it so carefully done up? Answered Delia evasively. They did not question further, but rushed downstairs to see for themselves. In the kitchen waited a foreign-looking man with olive skin and thin gold rings in his ears. On the floor beside him was a large, rough packing basket. That a May basket, exclaimed Abby, hardly able to restrain the tears of disappointment which started to her eyes. "See, senorita, replied the man. Her frown disappeared. It was certainly very nice to be addressed by so high-sounding a title. She wished she could get Delia to call her senorita but no, she felt sure that Delia never would. Pshaw! it's only a joke, said Larry, after a moment. Somebody thinks this is April Fool Day, I guess. Have patience for a little minute, please, said the man, as he cast away the packing, bit by bit. The children watched him with eager interest. By and by, he took out a little bunch of lilies of the valley, which he handed to Abby with a low bow. Next, he came to something shrouded in fold after fold of tissue paper. And here is the fairest lily of them all, he said in his poetic Italian fashion. What can it be, mother? asked the little girl, wonderingly. Mrs. Clayton smiled. It is from Sartoris, the fine art store where you saw the beautiful pictures last week. That is all I know about it, she replied. The man carefully placed the mysterious object on the table. It is some kind of a vase or an image, declared Larry. Why, so it is. Echoed Abby. In another moment, the tissue veil was torn aside, and there stood revealed a beautiful statue of the Blessed Virgin. Oh! exclaimed Larry, in delight. How lovely! added his sister. The image was about two feet high, and of spotless parian, which well symbolized the angelic purity it was intended to portray. To many, perhaps, it might appear simply a specimen of modeling, but little better than the average. However, those who looked on it with the eyes of faith saw before them not so much the work itself as the ideal of the artist. The graceful figure of Our Lady at once suggested the ethereal and celestial. The long mantle, which fell in folds to her feet, signified her modesty and motherly protection. The meekly folded hands were a silent exhortation to humility and prayer. The tender, spiritual face invited confidence and love. The crown upon her brow proclaimed her sovereignty above all creatures and her incomparable dignity as mother of God. And is this beautiful statue really ours? Just Larry's and mine? Asked Abby. So the messenger says, returned Mrs. Clayton. Who could have sent it, I wonder? Inquired Larry. The Italian pointed to the card attached to the basket. Abby took it off and read, To my little friends, Abby and Larry Clayton, with the hope that, especially during this month, they will try every day to do some little thing to honor our blessed mother, Father Dominic. From Father Dominic, exclaimed the boy in delight. How very good of him, added Abby gratefully. Father Dominic, generally so-called because his musical Italian surname was a stumbling block to our unwieldy English speech, was a particular friend of Mr. and Mrs. Clayton, who appreciated his culture and refinement and admired his noble character and devotion to his priestly duties. He was an occasional visitor at their house and took a great interest in the children. How nice of him to send us something we shall always have, Abby ran on. Now I can give the tiny image in my room to someone who hasn't any. May we make an altar for our statue, mother? asked Larry. Although, as a rule, a lively, rollicking boy, when it came to anything connected with his prayers, he was unaffectedly and almost comically solemn about it. Yes, responded Mrs. Clayton, and I think it would be a good plan also to frame the card and hang it on the front of the altar, so that you may not forget Father Dominic's words. Try every day to do some little thing to honor our Blessed Mother.
0: Thank you, Avon. This story is in four parts, so you get a nice reprieve from my voice for the next few weeks. I do want to say that the magazine is non-denominational. I myself am a baptized catholic turned Taoist, and my wife is Jewish, although non-practicing. I have had the great fortune of being exposed to many different religions through my friends, and I firmly believe that each one has something to offer. The problem I have is that, aside from Bruno Lessing, who you will get more of in the future, I promise, the vast majority of the stuff I can put on the podcast is by Christian authors, and religion was a big part of late 1800, early 1900 America. I don't have a lot of money for audio rights, so my main source is public domain. If you have stories from other religious perspectives that I can air on the magazine, I would love to have them. Next week, we get to help Abby and Larry set up an altar for their little statue, and observe the effects of the Fountain of Youth. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon, or on Audible, or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment, and let us know how we're doing. And by us... I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Marzine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from Storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.